for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Grape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts today. Nabil is on a much needed break. Our guests today are Kevin Libouet and Curtis Kapsack. They each started off with a college track in biology and then graduated with a master's in biology from James Madison University. Kevin was the lead bioinformatics scientist in the Virginia State Public Health Lab, DCLS, and a founder of the Staff B Workgroup. Most recently, he joined the bioinformatics contracting world through Theogen Genomics with Curtis Kapsack and Joel Savinsky. Curtis began his career in Colorado with Joel Savinsky for just a mere eight months before we nabbed him as a contractor at CDC on my team. However, in just the last two years, Joel has started his own company to help public health labs and has already started subcontracting. It is bittersweet that Curtis is now one of those subcontractors with Joel and has left my team. So first question to Curtis, how could you? Second question, how amazing do you feel going out into the world as a bioinformatics contractor? <laughs> uh, thanks for that great introduction, Lee. And to answer your question, it's me, not you. You know, I, I truly enjoyed working at CDC and, and it was an, an awesome place to be, but just decided it was best for my career path to, to take this, this contracting position with Theogen. I'm very excited to help support the U.S. public health bioinformatics community for, for the COVID pandemic. How, how does it work in the U.S.? Like in the U.K., you don't really get contractors and things like that working for government. It's more just uh, you get a job with a government organization or uh, institute or uh, university. So it, it's a bit alien to me. So could you maybe just uh, briefly explain what, what all of this is about? Yeah, sure. I can give some perspective on that. And then, Curtis, if you want to wrap up anything uh, that I might miss there. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is also coming from a relatively naive perspective. Like we have some level of understanding of it as we are in it, but we've been in it for like me, four months, Curtis, four days. But, <laughs> but we, we, you know, as, as, you know, as we stepped into our professional lives, we did, we were obviously aware that this was an option. So maybe something that we don't realize is that unique to the U S you know, government infrastructure is the private public relations and partnerships. And we're seeing that even um, really at the forefront of a lot of the, the public health initiatives with collaborations with, you know, big pharmaceutical companies and government funding. So that is the, the public private relationship that we kind of work in, in that there are these sums of money that the government, the federal government, and even state government make available for certain projects of which are like allotted to the state agencies or federal agencies. And they have an ability to contract out some of those works to specialized individuals, like in, in this case, Curtis and I, but it could be for any, any initiative under the, under the sun, you know, from, you know, aeronautics and engineering and then the contract works that happened with Boeing and NASA and things like this, or SpaceX also being awardees and, and those are uh, respect. And maybe those 
being more more known and digestible to the wider audience, but also in the realm of public health bioinformatics. You know, there's a specialized need that the government workforce doesn't necessarily have the, the complete bandwidth to cover. So our state and federal agencies have the opportunity to hire out contractors to fill those those voids. So kind of like the Uber of bioinformatics. <laughs> Crowdsourcing bioinformatics. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you can kind of think of us as almost like hired guns for specialized projects in this way. Very good. But but with less murder. <laughs> yeah. Murdering the challenges that are public health bioinformatics integration. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Grant, uh, so in the introduction, staff B was mentioned quite a bit. So first of all, am I pronouncing that correctly? And what does it actually mean? Yeah, yeah. So Staff B is the State Public Health Bioinformatics Workgroup. And this is a, a consortium in the U.S. amongst the public health scientists of folks who are interested in addressing the common barriers impeding bioinformatics implement, implementation for public health laboratories. And this whole thing started in about 2016 when I started my, my public health career. So coming out of James Madison University, having a background in infectious disease bioinformatics, I, I landed a job over there in the Virginia State Public Health Laboratory. And I was one of very few state public health bioinformatics scientists, actually one of four, the other three being Joel Savinsky, Sean Wang, and Kelly Okison. Uh, and in the US, you know, another discrepancy worth noting is the the differences between the federal government structure and the state government structure. And I think maybe in Europe and I think Canada as well, a lot of the public health is super centralized. And, and that's a model that works in, in, in these different countries. But in the US, just given the the, the separation of, of federal and state responsibilities, it's a more decentralized framework of, of, of public health. And in that respect, though, as states started gaining public health bioinformatics capabilities, we were running into challenges that were unique to state government. And we would seek advice from federal our federal partners. You know, I'm sure there's uh, threads of emails that I've been sending to Lee and, and, and Heather and everybody at the seat and Duncan about, hey, I need some guidance in respect to, you know, bioinformatics implementation at the state level. But there were issues and challenges that aren't really extant at the federal level. It's a different environment. So there's different challenges. So what we quickly realized is that if we speak to one another, that is the more peer communication between the state public health bioinformatics scientists. And so the four of us, we started meeting and we started addressing the common challenges that, that we were identifying that were sort of shared amongst the state laboratories in terms of infrastructure, procurement, technical workforce development training, and best practices uh, for state laboratories to adopt this technology. And we started meeting uh, regularly and, you know, we started adding more people to the group, other state and federal uh, practitioners of bioinformatics. And that started in 2016 of, you know, four people just trying to find guidance and we found each other and then we started creating the guidance. And then over the past like four years or so, it, it's kind of snowballed into an incredible, just organically growing community of people who care to integrate this powerful technology to inform public health decisions. And at this point, I think it's, you know, nearing 200 uh, members that, that represent, I would, I'm guessing every state public health laboratory in the U.S. at this point, including localities at the smaller level and some of the territories uh, represented in the, in, the, in the group as well. And then also the federal uh, partners at the CDC, Los Alamos Labs, and then academic partners at the Broad and 
I guess now you can consider Curtis and I industry partners and collaborators through Theogen Genomics. And uh, yeah, so so at its core, it's, it's a forum or a, a medium for us to communicate and collaborate to address these common issues. And, and from that just kind of basic premise, there's stemmed a lot of useful tools and, and software from that in, in our, our GitHub repository. One of the major ones being the topic of discussion today in the staff B Docker containers. And is there any particular focus on particular pathogens? Like, is it foodborne? Is it like STIs? Is there a focus on bacteria or parasites or viruses, you know, or is it just everything? In the U.S., the application of sequencing and bioinformatics for public health started with the enterics through, through a lot of the work that Lee has been a part of and, and also the FDA through the genome tracker program. So just based on where that, that immediate public health need and, and application came from, that's where a lot of our focus was in, in enteric pathogens. And I think that's true also through, through the global community. And then now, since then, though, things have, have expanded you know, in, in 2018, 2019, there was a larger focus on HAIs and, and nosocomial diseases and antimicrobial resistance. And then obviously, you know, in 2020, there's a huge influx in uh, viral concern for, for a reason I'm not really sure, but there's a lot of chatter on viruses now. Virus? Yeah, yeah. You heard <laughs> of those? Yeah. <laughs> One thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was you kind of started Staff Beat to, to help get together and help stop asking so many questions to, to Heather and Duncan and everybody. And I, I think on your website, you have it that actual explanation where you wanted to stop bothering Heather Carlton, who, who is who's technically my supervisor at the time, but right now things are, are changing just a little bit. And, and I, I showed it to her and she was at least at least a little bit amused, I'll tell you. I thought it was pretty <laughs> funny. She didn't even yeah, know that yeah. she was, was on there until, until we showed her. Yeah, I, it, <laughs> yeah. She, she was really, I mean, she had the, the federal perspective of what was happening at the States. So she played a critical role in getting us connected. You know, she, like I was asking her about, Hey, how do I, is cloud computing is something we can go to at the state level. And she, and she had mentioned like that wasn't something that the CDC was doing, but I know a guy in Colorado, Joel, here's his email. And that was like the sort of connection points that started uh, manifesting from, you know, bothering Heather. So you mentioned containers and what are you talking about there? Do you have like standard pipelines you can deploy widely or is it some other type of container? So it's, it's a mix of, of existing pipelines that were already out in the community and then some that were homegrown in the staff B group. So just to, for those that aren't aware of what containers are, it's, you know, a standard unit of software that packages up all code and dependencies so that a given application can run quickly and reliably from one computing environment to another. So I like to think of a container as an extremely lightweight virtual machine. And containers have been around for a while, but they really exploded on the scene in 2013 when Docker really gained in popularity across not just not just bioinformatics, but, but the larger information technology world, really. So it's Docker, not Singularity. Yeah, so our project has been developing specifically Docker files. And the reason for that being is because Docker is so cross-compatible with programs such as Singularity or Podman or other Docker-compatible programs. So that was one of the things that we kept in mind while working on this Staff Beat Docker Builds project was to make sure that our Docker images would be compatible with programs such as Singularity. 
So I, I don't know anything about stop bees, so excuse the, the silly questions, but is mm -hmm. it like uh, one container is one pipeline for one application, or is it a container is one piece of software with all the dependencies, or you know what, what level of granularity are the containers at? There's a varying level of granularity. Some of the Docker containers have just simply one tool, for example, just spades and its required dependencies. But there are some much larger containers that encompass all the dependencies for entire bioinformatics pipelines. For example, Shovel by Torsten Seaman and others, that entire environment is packaged up into a single Docker image. And there are some other examples as well, but yeah, they, they vary from teeny tiny containers having just one program to an entire pipeline with a suite of, of programs included. So within the containers, how do you manage the software itself? You know, I presume you don't have to hand build each one and you're using some kind of automation on the back end. Well, at the start, we, we have been manually building them one by one. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's a little bit extra work, but I, I think it's worth it because in the context that we're using these containers, we want them to be as repro reproducible as possible and under our control as much as possible. So we, we know exactly how things were installed because we've written the, the steps to install them and we're able to keep the environment static, you know, for example, just pinning the version of a specific piece of software, like we want to use Blast 2.9, right? We can pin that version in the container and it will stay that way unless down the road we want to upgrade it. But yeah. So how, how is software installed within the container? Do you use like, do you set up Conda within the container and then you're kind of making sure all the dependencies work or is it more complicated than that? So Conda is used inside some of the containers. I won't say all of them. A lot of the containers that I've developed, I've tried to avoid Conda because it can cause your Docker image to swell in size. And one of the general best practices for Docker is to keep your containers as lightweight as possible. And so Conda creates some bloat. So I, I've opted to go other routes as you know, installing things through the Ubuntu apt package manager. A lot of other folks use CentOS package managers. So it, it kind of depends on the application and uh, yeah. So what base image do you use? Uh, because I know this is quite controversial. Everyone seems to have their own uh, favorite base to work from. So what's yours? Yeah, so my favorite is Ubuntu for sure. That's the operating system that I'm most familiar with. The base image is supported by, I guess, Ubuntu, the, the company and Docker. So they are like official verified Docker images, you can trust them to use as a base image. And I use that just because I'm most familiar with it. It, it um, plays well. It's very compatible with a lot of bioinformatics applications or software. Do you, do you use the LTS or the latest uh, Ubuntu version? I, I don't typically use the latest. I, I use Ubuntu 16.04 LTS most of the time, but as newer tools are being developed, that does require upgrading to Ubuntu 18 and 20, but that's that's very easy to switch between the two. They're very similar, but um, yeah, I typically use Ubuntu. As a curveball, I use Debian testing whenever I'm doing a okay. doing Docker containers or Singularity actually these days. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of mad because so many people have you know they can be so um, passionate about their choice of base image and why <laughs> best there is. And actually, you know, there is some really interesting base images out there, like 
they're totally stripped down, you know, teeny tiny little little images that people use. But then it's a pain just to install even the simplest bioinformatics tool. So Lee, do you have any questions? I didn't know that that somebody would use a test container like as a curveball. What what happens when you're testing it like that? I'm I'm intrigued by the computer science part of this now. Debian testing. Oh no, it, it's the the name of a, like a release. So Debian is like super super stable, and that's uh, mm -hmm. what underlies uh, Ubuntu. So Debian stable is like it changes like at glacial speed. If you want to go back in time, that's what you use. But, you know, it's going to work. It doesn't change. Nothing's going to break. Uh, and then Debian testing is usually, I think, what Ubuntu works off. And that is has more of the advanced features, but it's updated a little bit more frequently. And then you have Debian unstable. And that's just, you know, quite, quite crazy. But uh, Debian testing is kind of a nice middle ground. You know, you get uh, up-to-date stuff, but you don't necessarily maybe have bloat that you get in other things so you know it, it's personal preference it's it goes back many 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 years <laughs> okay well thanks for for, for addressing that I, I was i was pretty curious so I, I was also curious with you guys and staff be like all of a sudden like i knew that you guys got together and you were you were talking you got linked up and you, and you started growing in numbers and then all of a sudden you guys started using containers so what what really sparked that? When did that start? Who started it? <laughs> um, well, I think at least in the Staffy community, I started it along with some others. I believe, yeah, around I, the I same was, time, Kelsey Florick as well. Because Chris, um, you started. What year was that when you did the APHL Bioinformatics Fellowship? So that was 2018. I actually had a look back at the very first commit <laughs> to this repository. It was September 2018. Is the first yeah. commit. So, and to speak on even like just right before Curtis had got there, before we were even aware of what containers were and Docker's were, in kind of in line with the whole public health bioinformatics community, probably the whole bioinformatics community at large, like the sort of technological progress went from, you know, when we were in grad school, the way you get access to an open source tool is you cross your fingers that they have documentation on how to set up the dependencies. You start going through those dependencies and then you find out those dependencies need dependencies. And then you spend a week trying to figure out which one am I missing in the version releases that are associated with that. And it was like, okay, I finally got fast QC running or something like that, just something ridiculous, right? And that's like where we were all coming from, from our academic experience. As we all started kind of getting into our professional worlds, that's when uh, we all started to appreciate things like package managers, like Conda and, and PIP and stuff like that. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is like, all that much, uh, all that much easier to to get tools onto our environments, but even with that, you know, there was a level of complexities of, you know, I think the biggest thing, I think this is from one of Torsen's talks of like, you know, that 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 phrase of, well, it works on my machine, and that just wasn't pass that we couldn't that wasn't passable for public health bioinformatics, especially like I had mentioned with the, the states, we all have our own jurisdictions and little requirements, compute infrastructures. So we don't share a single centralized environment where we can all just pick, you know, load different modules that, oh, I know Lee put the, you know, the live set module, I can load that and then start running it. We're all disjointed in that way. So the major issue was how do we make this interoperable? And we were trying to solve that briefly a little bit with Conda packages and, and even people still documenting how they're setting up their local environment. But then right around 2018 is uh, when Curtis started and Kelsey Florick also, I think, was the first one to introduce me to the idea of what even containers are. I think I had a little bit of exposure with it too, with 
Illumina's app, like they have like app, like application, base-based applications that you can develop in. And I was starting to get exposure to it there, but Kelsey really showed me the utility of, of Dockers and containers and how she was using it at Wisconsin University or uh, University of Wisconsin was like, whoa, this needs to happen. But then and that's when Curtis started uh, his APHL fellowship. And so Kelsey and Curtis had like the time and the bandwidth to really dedicate to it. And they kind of planted the foot, the, the flag in the ground. And then once we all saw the utility in it, it was like, oh my goodness, now we can all have interoperable software. If, if it works on your machine, now I know that it's in container, it will just innately, inherently work on my machine. And that, that was a lot of the work that Curtis and Kelsey started off there. So something that's more important for public health labs is uh, not that you can install software and get it working, but actually is it validated and it, the versions don't change and that, you know, you get the same result tomorrow that you got today. So how does staff be actually cope with that? Yeah, so, yeah, no, I agree. I, so I, I spoke to that a little bit earlier, but, you know, in developing these these Docker containers, we encourage the best practices and the main main one being in pinning specific versions of tools. And, and the goal is, is, like you said, to validate the use of these containers in public health bioinformatics uh, pipelines. I'm not sure if, if folks have validated our Docker images in, in their, their bioinformatics pipelines yet, but that's, that's the eventual goal is, is so that folks can use these as part of their pipelines. And, and even when new versions of tools come out, it's, it's you know, the flip of a switch to go to the new version and then revalidate on your, your test data set and, and you know, it's, it's great for, for your own purposes, but it's also awesome because there are multiple people that can use the tools and, and everybody can use the same ones. So there's, it's sort of an attempt at standardization, but not, you know, we're not telling people you have to use these tools, but they are here, you know, if, if, if you would like to use them. So bioinformatics tools, most of them are developed by academics and they're mm-hmm. academic quality and they change, you know, every day nearly. And so how do you know when you should actually upgrade a tool to the next version or not? No, that's a good question. Um, I think it's going to depend on the specific application and what that update brings. Yeah, especially when you're at the application level, it will depend on on really what the business cases of, of the, the use of that tool and also like the added benefit with that version release, right? Like if it's, if there's some minor compute efficiency or text wrangling that is done to the final report, that might not initiate the new versioning or, or adopting the new versioning, because when you adopt a new version, then you have to internally do a whole quality assessment and validation that nothing has changed from version to version. And that is like, like Curtis said, that is an ongoing conversation on how to make those uh, adoption of the, of the new version releases. And I think Lee, probably you have a pretty good perspective on this too, in the Enteryx world, when you guys validated like the Seek Zero and Zero Type Finder databases. And like just recently, I think Zero Type Finder made a conversion from, from Perl to Python, which is a conversion that, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of Lee. I don't know if you have that same uh, spirit of advocacy for Python adoption there, but it did happen. And you know, in looking at the outputs, like those kinds of dis- decisions have to be made. Like, does that version update significantly modify the outputs in ways that would enhance 
public health. And, and so that is probably the slower adoption. It's not like every latest release, we need to make the adoption, but, but does it uh, enhance the public health need? Which again, gets even to a more relevant conversation of like the super dynamic development in SARS-CoV-2 world, especially with the databases for, for example, Pangolin and how we adopt those. And, and with those, there's a lot more dynamic adoption of the newest versions because of course there's you know public health action that needs to be taken off of the latest information during a global pandemic. So how do your containers actually get built? Do you have like continuous integration? So whenever things are updated, they get magically built and tested, or is it some kind of manual process that gets kicked off? It's automated for some of the containers, not that many. That's a goal of ours is to move towards more automation. But at, at this point in time, it is a little bit of a manual process. Basically, folks can add Docker files to our repository through a pull request, and we'll review them make changes if necessary, and merge that Docker file into our, our repository. And from there, one of, the, one of the maintainers will go and build that image on Docker Hub. And it, it is a little bit of work, but I, again, I think it's worth it because we're able to you know, have, have discrete control over what versions are available on Docker Hub so that so, so one, one issue I've found with, with the automated building of Docker images is that the default setting is to rebuild the image every time a commit is pushed to the master branch. And that in our, in our use case where we want to keep things static and we don't want to change the Docker images, that's not a good thing. So we, we have it set to where we manually trigger builds if there's an updated Docker file, but for the most part, it's it's kept you know as static as possible. And do you trigger them by like doing a release or do, tagging a, bran- a branch or something like that, or how does that happen? Um, it's as simple as just adding a new Docker file to the repository with a version specified um, in the the path, and then from there we go and release a new tag with that that version in the Docker image tag. So so the names of all of our Docker images. They begin with the word staff B and then a uh, forward slash followed by the name of the given tool that's in the image, just for example, spades. And then the part after the colon is the version of the spades tool that's inside the container. So we're, we're trying to keep, keep things organized in that, in that manner. At, at one point, I saw that you guys decided to do some automation, like what you were saying. Are there are there any more like nuances, like especially something like Pangolin that gets updated perhaps every day at sometimes? Like how I know that you're automating that now. How is that done? So currently, with with the Pangolin Docker image, it is automated through GitHub Actions which is a new thing for me, but it's been wildly useful. So I've set up a GitHub Actions workflow to basically create a new Docker image every time there's a new version of Pangolin or a new version of the Pangolin models that are used by the Pangolin tool. So anytime a new version is released by the authors of those tools, a GitHub Actions workflow is triggered and it'll create a new Docker file. It will build the Docker image and push it to Docker Hub. And you know, within the span of 15 minutes, it's immediately available to the world. You know, not long after the the new version of Pangolin or Pango Learn is is released. So, due to the frequency of the, that Pangolin and Pangolin are updates, it's 
you know, it's, it's challenging to keep up with it, but luckily GitHub Actions has, has made it less time consuming to keep, keep updated. I, I can see for Pangolin, you have a substantial number of versions available. Fair play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, updated sometimes every day or every two days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if, if I'm just like, um, just some person out in the world, and I think that it would be great to have this software put into the staff B containers area. Is that like a request you guys take? Is there some way to, to ask for that? Or is that like, no, you should do that on your own. You're not part of staff B. No, no, not at all. Please, if folks want to contribute, we welcome the contributions. We welcome any feedback. It's open to anyone that wants to contribute. So we have a, a guide for this and we'll provide the, a link to the guide in the description. But in short, anybody can submit a pull request to the repository if, if they, they find a tool that isn't in a container yet and they, they want to have it versioned in our repository, we, we welcome it. Yeah, we welcome, you know, in the, in the spirit of open source software, you know, we, we want everybody to be able to contribute and give feedback. So, so yeah. Please, if you, if you have an idea for a container, let us know. You could submit an issue on GitHub. You can also submit a pull request directly, or you can contact one of the, the many maintainers of the Staff B project. And, and I should have, I, I want to say this, I should have said this before, but I want to acknowledge that, that I'm not the only maintainer. Kevin is not the only maintainer either. This project would not be possible without the, the large number of people that have contributed. Um, so I just want to throw out a few names here real fast. Big thank you to all these folks. I'm listing them in no particular order. Kelsey Florick, Aaron Young, Jake Garfin, Abigail Shockey, Kelly Okason, Rachel St. Jacques, Logan Fink, Lee Katz, uh, Andres Goncalves da Silva. Sorry if I butchered your name. Uh, Tara, Gall Tara Gallagher um, and an unknown GitHub user named Joao C. Joe. Um, and there might be others that I uh, forgot, but I, I grabbed that list off of our, our contributors list. So big thank you to those folks. Um, this really would not have been possible without their, their support. So thank you. Yeah, really great to do that. I'm glad you did that. And I'm impressed that you have an anonymous GitHub username that contributed. Yeah. <laughs> Any I'm trying to look them up and see, can you find them, you know? We've done the <laughs> same. I'm not sure. At I'm first just I thought an American uh, singer-songwriter called JoJo. <laughs> <laughs> Must be that person. <laughs> Interesting. Well, now that we got through like all the nitty gritty, I feel like you have any war stories? Do, do you have any, Kevin? Uh, okay, so I, I think I think that the it's worth saying that yeah, Docker's have gotten us an incredibly like leaps and bounds in terms of interoperability, and especially in in that pursuit of validations and, and keeping things static. But there are some tools that even even if they are in a static Docker image, they will break, and the, this is really frustrating behavior. I think you guys even spoke on this a little bit with with Praka in in regards to the NCBI tool that that's being utilized there. I just recently ran into this issue with R packages that they, if you make an R, this is, I had no idea that this was a thing, but we have an, uh, a report builder with an R markdown script uh, and an R template. And there's some R packages there that 
I think as they're run, they compare themselves to the remote version. And if they are in any way misaligned, it will fail the job. So like, yeah, even if it's in a static container environment, you know, it will break based on some version updates. And I think with the NCBI tool, it's even like a, like a calendar deadline of this will break on this date. So those I think are the biggest war stories when it's like, oh shoot, oh, the date came up. We have to rebuild all the images. And like, you know, for, for a little bit of time, we're all scrambling to figure out uh, solutions that, to work around those. Those are the most frustrating points is uh, static images that are still in some way con- connected to either a timeline where it will lose functionality or connecting them itself to, to see if it's misaligned with a remote repository and it breaking if, if, it is, if it is misaligned in that way. So how do you handle images which require databases, say, either to be downloaded or prepackaged with them? And Because some of the databases can be massive, like, say, with Proca and whatnot. Yeah, great question. That has been a challenge throughout the process of, of making these containers. I would say it depends on the size and how how often the database changes sometimes. Take, take Kraken, for example. Yeah, Kraken's so with, one, yeah. with Kraken, in the beginning, we wanted everything to be included. We wanted a Kraken database, which can be massive, depending on which Kraken database you get, ranging from you know 8 gigabytes up to... 100 gigabytes. So we tried to include the mini Kraken database in the beginning, and it worked to some extent, but some users did have issues downloading the Docker image or the Docker container because of how large it was. So since then, we've started to just offer Docker images that do not have the database included, and we provide instructions to the users. Here's how you can you know, use your own Kraken database, whatever it is, with our Docker image. So yeah, again, we want the the containers to be as lightweight as possible, but also as usable as possible and frustration-free as possible. So there's a balance we have to strike between whether we include required database or not. So Kraken, we, we generally, for the newer versions, we aren't going to be included databases, but for things such as, you know, for like E. coli serotyping, with Serotype Finder. That's a database that's small enough in size and stays pretty static. So that that's easily included with a Docker image and you know it makes it easier to run the tool. So if people cite this in, in their work, how would they cite it? Is there a paper or something? There is not a paper yet. They can uh, cite this podcast. They could cite the <laughs> podcast or no, probably it'd be best to cite the, the GitHub repository. And of course, cite the the original developers of the tools. We've done our best to label all of our, or label and document all of our Docker containers with the original author, the original GitHub repositories, the licenses for those softwares. So yeah, we would love a citation, but we are are working on on a paper. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.
you didn't know this, but you you touched on that every time I talk with Curtis now, I'm like, where when are you gonna start your paper? <laughs> <laughs>